I have a question for you today. Can you name for me the winner of the 1952 Nobel Peace Prize? And try doing this without Google, Alexa, or Siri. Kind of makes it tough. So, I, I do want to give you a couple of clues. The 1952 Nobel Peace Prize winner was a multi-talented citizen of two countries, Germany and France. He was a Lutheran pastor. But his talents extended into several disciplines, including, if you're ready for this, music. He was both an accomplished organist as well as a musicologist. Medicine. He was a physician. Philosophy. In fact, he was said to be competent in holding his own with the best of his day's philosophers, the humanities, and he was a noted author. In fact, it was his book titled Reverence for Life that earned him the Nobel Peace Prize. So, have you put it together yet? The name of the 1952 Nobel Peace Prize recipient is Albert Schweitzer, and I'm telling you, he's someone who's worth getting to know if you don't already. Here's why. Schweitzer, as a larger-than-life kind of character, remains the man who popularized what was happening to the Bible in his time, namely an all-out assault upon the historical accuracy of the scriptures. At issue, now this is the 1950s, was a single question. Can we, as readers of the Bible, trust the historical accuracy of the stories that lie within its pages? Or was scripture, the Bible, ever intended to be read as a historically accurate text in the first place? Both of these questions, by the way, remain relevant to this day. So, how did Schweitzer answer the question? You may remember that it was in the 1950s that a method for interpreting the Bible based in the literary sciences, began to become popularized and more widely debated, at least here in America. The method, known as historical criticism, had its roots in the 17th century. While it is complex to understand, uh, there, are, there are several different forms of historical criticism, including source criticism, form criticism, redaction criticism, and radical criticism, it's complex, but, but one single thought underlie the whole of this methodology. That, that thought is simply this, that it is virtually impossible to truly know which parts of the Bible are and which are not historically accurate. That is the contention of this methodology. Historical criticism starts with the assumption that all of history is understood through a subjective lens namely the lens of both the communicator as well as the receptor who must make sense of what is being communicated. So using literary tools, the Bible is analyzed down to its last comma and period toward the goal of seeking to identify to the best of the analysis capability which parts of the Bible are most likely based in history and which are extrapolations, myths, and or additions. It was, of course, this methodology that Schweitzer employed when he began his work on a book that would rattle Christianity around the globe. You, you may remember the book. I, I do. I remember reading it for the first time many years ago. It's a book entitled The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Now, I think the reason I still remember the book was my surprise at Schweitzer's conclusions. 
When I picked up the book, my expectation based upon its title was that of learning some maybe historical details that lay underneath the life of Jesus. It makes sense, right? The historical quest for Jesus. Maybe I'll learn some historical details. To my surprise, however, it was really the intent of Schweitzer not to solidify the historicity of Jesus's life, but oppositely to call the very history of the gospel accounts into question. I, st- I still remember reading the book with jaw-dropping dismay. I recall thinking, how could someone with such incredible talent, someone so unquestionably brilliant, end up so far away from the truth? I still hold that question to this day. If you don't know this about me, I, I will just tell you that I'm a huge believer in the historical accuracy of the Bible. In fact, over the years, I've become more and more convinced of what I've always believed, namely that every word, comma, and period come to us through writers that were moved to write what they wrote through the power of the Holy Spirit, with the outcome that what we have in the Bible is a book written by God through men. This is a book that is wholly trustworthy and historically accurate in its every word. Now, saying this, I'm not naive. I'm aware from a theological perspective, that I I am in the minority. Today, we live in a world of Albert Schweitzer's, a world where the Bible is simply looked at as a, a good religious book handed down through the ages as an extrapolated edited text, not meant to be understood as history, but merely as spiritually helpful toward developing one's own understanding of who or what God might be. All of which, by the way, makes the chapter of Daniel that I'd like to lead us back into today, chapter 11, so significant. Here's what I want you to know. As we enter chapter 11 of Daniel's narrative, we, we will find ourselves in one of the most historically rich chapters in all the Bible. Pointedly, to read Daniel 11 is to read the words of a God who wants us to know not only that his book is accurate, but that he and he alone holds history in his hands. As we journey through chapter 11, I'm going to make it my aim to demonstrate to you just how accurate the words Daniel gives us are. In turn, I'm going to ask you to keep one question in front of yourself throughout. Here it is. Why is Jesus speaking these words to Daniel? Another word, another way to ask the question, what is the purpose of chapter 11 in Daniel's narrative? So hang on to these questions as we explore the whole of this chapter over the next couple of weeks, beginning with the first part today. So let me tell you that one of the things that got me thinking about the, the topic of biblical accuracy was a book I read several years ago titled Jesus Interrupted. It's a book written by an author named Bart Ehrman. I don't, I don't know if you know that name, but if you, if you don't, let me just tell you that he's a well-known figure in theological circles. He serves as the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Just a side note, it generally surprises people when I tell them that many, if not most, of the professors and seminaries across both Europe and America today are either agnostic or atheistic. When I express this truth, I often get a stare back along with a question. Look, are are you telling me that many of the professors who are preparing people to enter congregations as pastors do not even believe in God? Yep, it's exactly what I'm telling you. And no, you should not be surprised either at this or the fact 
that there is a reason so many of America's churches have all but abandoned the Bible. Certainly, that was the case with Ehrman. In his book, again, the title of the book is Jesus Interrupted, Ehrman, using the tools of, yes, you guessed it, historical criticism, announces his belief that the Bible never truly intended for its readers to understand Jesus as the divine Son of God, made incarnate through his birth into our world, with one mission, the salvation of souls through his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. Oh, no, no. Ehrman suggests instead that Jesus was simply one of many Jewish apocalyptic preachers in his time. Jesus, according to Ehrman, errantly believed that the end times were near. Accordingly, he went about Jerusalem and the Palestinian region preaching that the evil regime of Rome would be overthrown in his lifetime. God establishing his rule on earth through his people, the Jews. Ehrman goes on to say that such teachings as the resurrection, the divinity of Jesus, and the Trinity were actually just later inventions of the church, not not intended teachings of the Bible, which he sees as a text created and manipulated by men over the centuries to produce various images or stories about God, but of which one should not rest any notion of historical accuracy upon, which of course brings us to the text before us, Daniel chapter 11. If you listened to last week's podcast, we found ourselves at the end of chapter 10 in the story of Daniel. What I, what I absolutely love about this chapter is the posture of Jesus that it presents. In the world of humanities, we often present Jesus as soft. Just think about this. So many of the paintings we see of Jesus depict him in soft terms. He's carrying a lamb on his shoulders. He's bending down to look into the eyes of a child as he proclaims, of such is the kingdom of heaven. Most portraits picture Jesus with a wide smile on his face, outstretched arms, none of which are wrong. And Jesus we ought to find, not God distant or untouchable, but God in our very midst. We should experience him. Laughter is love all that it means to be cared for. But we ought to do so knowing that there's another side to Jesus. Jesus is also warrior and defender. And it is as such that Jesus presents himself to Daniel through an ecstatic vision. Over the last several weeks, we've watched Daniel fall down on his face before warrior Jesus, only to be lifted up as Jesus postures himself as the warrior who fights for us in the unseen realm. I want you to notice this. As chapter 10 ends, Jesus begins to make proclamation to Daniel. It's as though Jesus wants Daniel to know, not only do I fight for you behind the curtain that separates the physical world from the spiritual, but I also hold victory in my hand. There is, we we might say it this way, a now but not yet quality to Jesus's warfare on our behalf. Now there is battle. But what's already as good as if it had already happened is his victory. What Jesus wants Daniel to see is just how intricately he is involved in history. Said simply, Jesus wants Daniel to know that history really is his story. It's as good as already written. As such, Jesus refers to something that a lot of people have never heard of, namely the book of truth. You'll find the book specifically identified by Jesus at the end of Daniel chapter 10, verse 
21. I want you to listen to these words. And Lord, we do, as always, just pray that you give us insight into what you would teach us. Here are the words. Jesus says, quote, do you know why I have come to you? He's speaking to Daniel. Do you know why I've come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. I remember the prince of Persia in this context is not a physical prince, but rather a demon, a demon who oversees the whole of the nation of Persia. Jesus has been fighting him behind the, the curtain of separation. Jesus then goes on to say, quote, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. Now, he's really saying to Daniel, one demon goes and another demon comes. But, he says, quote, before I get to this fight, I first will tell you what is written, listen to these words, in the book of truth, end quote. So, let, let me ask you this. What is the book of truth? What was Jesus referring to? And I'm going to tell you this. It's not the Bible. It's distinct and separate from the Bible. After all, Jesus is giving Daniel these inspired words that are to be recorded as the Bible. So this is a distinct book, but what is it? The book of truth. Here's my best answer. It appears, based upon all that we read in chapter 11, that the book of truth is a book held by God himself, not accessible to human beings, that contains within his pages the totality of history from beginning to to end. Just as the Revelation introduces to us the book of life, a book containing the names of those that will be on new earth for eternity, so does this book contain the whole of history as it takes us to that time of Jesus' return and the resurrection. So put this together. As chapter 11 begins, Jesus is revealing to Daniel a piece of or a part of history. History from the moment that Daniel is living to a war that will take place at the end of time. A war that we call Armageddon. More on that to come. So, how does Jesus begin? I want you to listen to these words. I'm going to read out of Daniel chapter 11, just the first two verses. And again, we do pray, Lord, would you show us what, what you want us to know through these words Give us insight. Give us your wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we go. I'm going to quote. This is, again, Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Quote, And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. I'm going to end there with the conclusion of verse number two. Okay, so what is Daniel being shown here? I find it important to pay attention to the frame of time that's being described. So think about this with me. When Jesus speaks these words to Daniel, Darius or Cyrus, the king of Persia, has just assumed rule of what was formerly Babylon. We're at the front end of Babylon's assimilation into Persia. The year, remember this with me, is about 550 BC. Now, when Jesus tells Daniel, three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth, the question becomes, how accurate historically are these words? 
In other words, when we go back to historical records and we look at the lineage of the kings of Persia from 550 BC forward, were there four kings, five kings, six kings, two kings? How many kings would follow Darius with one of them amassing enough money and power to challenge the nation of Greece? I'm telling you, this is an important question. Here's why. Because the vast majority of people living in Europe and the United States right now, were you to ask them, if the Bible is historically accurate down to the last word in it, would answer no, or, or might at a minimum express doubt. Let me, let me provide hard data. In 2017, Gallup Analytics, a division of the Gallup organization, conducted a statistical poll on the number of Americans holding the belief that the Bible is the literal word of God. I still remember reading the results of this poll and being shocked. I, I was. I probably shouldn't have been, but I was. Here's Gallup's data. In the year 2017, 24% of America's population believed that the Bible was the literal word of God. That is, two out of every 10 Americans could in any way believe that the Bible is a historically accurate book down to the last detail. That was 2017. So let me ask you this. It's now 2023. Do you believe that number, the number of people who discount the historicity of the Bible, do you believe it's gone up or down? Are there more or less Americans that would hold that the Bible is historically accurate down to the last detail? I think we know the answer to that question. Far fewer. In fact, I think it's probably safe to say today that less than two out of every 10 Americans believe that the Bible is historically in its details. So when we turn to a section of scripture that purports to be based upon the book of truth, we have to ask the question, then is it true? Is it accurate? We have the historical means to know the answer to the question. And guess what? If we can prove that even one word of the Bible that purports to be historically accurate is not, then the whole of the Bible's historicity is called into question. I believe the way that you answer this question matters a great deal. Are the words of Daniel, as recorded in the book of Daniel, chapter 11, accurate, or are they not? Because Jesus speaks these words to Daniel some 64 years before they will ever take place. Think about that. Here, here's the answer. The words are incredibly and precisely accurate to a T. When you look at the annuals of history and trace the lineage of kings that would follow Darius or Cyrus, there are exactly three kings that will follow him prior to a fourth king rising up who will challenge the nation of Greece. Here they are. Cambyses immediately follows Darius, who will rule from 530 to 522 BC. Guamata will follow Cambyses and will rule one year not even the whole year, 522 B.C. Guamata will be killed and followed by Darius, who is the first. And he will rule from 522 to 486 B.C. This is a separate Darius from the Darius who we read about at the beginning of Persia's rule. And when he dies, he'll be succeeded by Xerxes, a wealthy king who indeed challenges Greece. Xerxes will rule from 486 to 465 BC, the books of history line up precisely with God's book of truth. Historically accurate? Mm -hmm. To the last detail. Which is what 
in my mind, makes the whole of this section of Daniel so incredibly significant for those of us who still profess a belief in the literalness and the accuracy of the scriptures. I want, I want to carry this forward next week, and, and we will. But for today, today I, want, I want to just set a couple of questions in front of you that I hope stir up some, some thoughts. So question one, authors and speakers like Albert Schweitzer and Bart Ehrman have long held that the Bible is a book filled with error, myth, and extrapolations. Here's my question to you. How, how would you respond to someone who questions the Bible's historical accuracy? How, how do you address someone who might say to you, hey, look, the Bible might be a good book, but it's not history. How do, how do you respond? Question two, can you name any instance in which archaeology has disproven the historical accuracy of the Bible. It only takes one. If archaeology substantively disproves even one of the Bible's historical contentions in the whole, all of the Bible's claims must be called into question. So that's what I'm asking. Can you name even one? Question number three. Let me flip that. Can you name any instance in which archaeology has proven the historical claims and accuracy of the Bible? Are you aware of any findings that support a theology of inspiration? If these exist, it would be advantageous to know them. Well, again, we'll pick up on this next week, and I'm already looking forward to it. For now, we're going to bring our session to a close. As always, I, I just thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Uh, it just means a lot to me. I, I hope that it's helpful to you. I hope it stirs up some good questions, some good conversation. I'm going to continue praying for you. We're entering now into the season of Lent, and this is, uh, in my mind, one of the great seasons of the year. This, the Spirit is so powerfully at work in this season. I'm going to ask that you pray for me, pray for my family, even as I will for you. And then, until next week, my prayer for you is that you will have a God-sized week. Mm-hmm.